been a while. Welcome back to Hot Pocket. This is episode 46 with it just me. It's just sad this time. I told Sherry Yar what I wanted to do for this episode. He saw the documents and he fled to the People's Republic of China. He is a traitor to the United States of America. I'm just kidding. He's over getting sucked and fucked over in Las Vegas. Well, I don't know if he's getting sucked and fucked. I don't know if I should be saying that. That might be liable. Uh, this might cause a huge fallout between the two of us. But he's having a good time. He's over there for a bachelor party for our friend Osman. Also, speaking of marriage-related things, my friend Rabia just got married this weekend. So, congratulations to her and Sufyan. Meanwhile, your favorite loud, solo, rambunctious, off-the-cuff podcast host is doing a wild adventure on his lonesome. So the thing I'm going to focus on is very political in nature, very historical in nature, very international in nature. No fluff, no nothing, no blah. We'll see how long it goes. We're talking about a core issue in China. But before we get there, and you might have a sense of what I'm talking about, I want to take a little detour to 1991. We're talking the Gulf War. The Gulf War was between Iraq and Kuwait, and the United States was on the side of Kuwait. Now, why the hell is this relevant to China? Now, we'll get there. There's important flavor and context here. I'm going to tell you the story of Naira. October 10th, 1990, before the Gulf War officially begun, Congress was holding hearings to decide whether they would go into Kuwait to support them against Iraq because Iraq did invade Kuwait. All right. So the Human Rights Caucus held a hearing again, October 10th, 1990, and a 15-year-old girl from Kuwait named Naira, she didn't have a last name or anything, it was supposed to be a pseudonym because they wanted to protect her identity, she spoke out against the violence she had seen from soldiers, and Naira's testimony, which I think is about four minutes long, can be found on YouTube. Spoiler warning, this whole uh, incident that I'm about to talk to you about is on Wikipedia in case you want to fact check me. Not that that should ever be the basis of a fact check, but, you know, it's it makes my work easier. Now, according to Naira, she was with her family in Kuwait when Iraq invaded them. And at the time, she was volunteering at a local hospital to help them out. All right, very nice. Naira, you're a go girl. Go girl. Go you. Here's her quote. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators, and left the children to die on the cold floor. It was horrifying. I could not help but think of my nephew who was born premature and might have died that day as well. When the U.S. Congress signed the Authorization for Use of Military Force against Iraq in 1991, which was a declaration to go into the Gulf War, Many members of Congress specifically cited this story and incidents as justification that there were grievous human rights abuses. I don't know if grievous is the right word here. Major human rights abuses that spurred the U.S. to act. And Naira's story was being corroborated at the time by major groups like Amnesty International. You've probably heard about them. In a 92-page report detailing Iraq's human rights abuses... Amnesty International not only confirmed the story, but also did an estimation that 312 babies were killed this way. Now, I need to be clear. This 312 baby figure is not just talking about babies who might have died 
during the course of Iraq's invasion. This is specifically about 312 babies being killed in the prenatal centers in a manner similar to the way Naira described. This is an official Amnesty International report. You can find the link, the document, etc., 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 etc. As you can imagine, every major news outlet in America was reporting on this, reporting on this as fact because Amnesty International talked about it. This was like a congressional testimony. It's a heart-wrenching story. Why would you not believe this story? What, what are you, a conspiracy theorist? That's crazy. Uh, here's a plot twist. Naira's full name is Naira al-Sabah. Her father, Saud al-Sabah, so not Saad, Saud, same, different dude, was Kuwait's ambassador to the United States. So remember, the given reason for them not using her full name was to protect her identity from potential retribution or assailants. Obviously, once people did enough, uh, muckraking, I think that's the term, people found out that, no, really, it was because she was incredibly politically connected, was not in the situation that she described. I need to be clear, in case it's not abundantly clear. She was out the hospital. That story was completely made up. She was given those talking points ahead of time in order to create justification for this war. The organization responsible for the story was called Citizens for Free Kuwait. It positioned itself as a group of Kuwaiti exiles trying to bring justice for their home country. And it was part of the Kuwaiti government proper. So let me be clear, this was an actual government organization from Kuwait that was doing PR and marketing to the American government to get America to invade, but they lied and said actually we're a bunch of exiles from Kuwait. That's called astroturfing. That That is a tried and true formula. And let me be clear, this makes it seem like, oh, America just got duped into it. No, 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 no. America was very much in on it because historically, and this is there's a reason why I'm telling you all this now, America tends to fund these kinds of groups to set them up as preemptive government organizations so that when America does a thing that they ask, which is usually invading their home country, they will then put those guys at the top after they've toppled it. So Citizens for Free Kuwait hired an American PR firm, Hill and Knowlton, and I think Hill and Knowlton's still alive and cooking, kicking. They're doing all their shit. And so Hill and Knowlton trained Naira to deliver that speech and probably tear up some and probably make the right facial expressions when she made that testimony to the U.S. Congress. John Martin, a reporter for ABC News, went to the Kuwaiti hospitals after the war to confirm details of the story. Nothing from that testimony ever happened. And as you might imagine, John Martin was the guy who discovered Naira's identity, and he did publish it in New York Times. Of course, this happened after we invaded, so it's kind of like, who really cares? I mean, this is typically the way it goes. Whenever there is a massive conspiracy to get American support for a major geopolitical or foreign policy intervention, every news outlet and, and you know, cable news outlet, traditional media outlet will run gung-ho with every source they find. They won't vet them properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They will use unidentified sources and just get whatever's thrown at them. But then a couple years later down the, ro the road, they'll apologize for the misreporting or do an expose about, well, this is how we got to. It's like, okay, well, that's nice for the millions of people that ended up getting killed because of this. And by the way, a lot of people got did get killed, both Iraqis and Kuwaitis, because of American intervention. Because, you know, America got the, the, got the gap. 
they got the muscle power. There is a story about how, and content warning, America bombed the shit out of a building. And I think there were both, there were Kuwaiti people in there mostly. And after the fact, when people, when a first aid came, they found that the heat of the combustion not only caused the building to fall apart naturally, but it caused people's bodies to melt in together. The damage done to these people is fucking insane. And speaking to the idea that people say sorry too late, Amnesty International, again, the same fucking organization that ended up corroborating Naira's claims, which were completely bullshit and never happened, they published a report condemning the Bush administration for its role in lying about the lead-up to the Gulf War, which they were very complicit in. So what does it really matter? Like, you got duped, at the very least, or were cynically helping a foreign policy angle, but then you're going to say sorry about it also. Oh, by the way, uh, the chairman for the U.S. Congress committee that held the hearings was Tom Lantos, and he has many business dealings with Hill and Knowlton, the PR firm hired by citizens for free quit that also trained Naira. So there's a lot of questions there as well. I'm sure there's a more specific example of uh, what his dealings were and how he was aware of all this ahead of time. Saad, why the hell are you telling me about this story? Thank you for telling me this crazy, important story that exposes how much lying is involved in every foreign policy intervention. But why did you tell us this if you opened the episode telling us that we're mostly going to be talking about China? First of all, I think this is an important story to know on its own terms. But also, I'm trying to demonstrate that when there is a plan and objective for a different country, America will go do gymnastics to create a PR campaign, a marketing campaign, and fund people from the necessary countries to get them on board with their program in order to then get American citizens to co-sign the idea. Even though American citizens uh, co-signing is not that important, frankly, as long as the senators get involved or as long as the president gets involved, you know, that's all you really need. But I'm trying to demonstrate the idea that uh, our government lies a lot for terrible, terrible, terrible reasons. This episode is more so a lesson in media literacy. I'm teaching you guys, uh, this is Professor Saad here, I'm teaching you guys the concept of assessing the source and assessing what a source says and if what it, the source says matches with what they are telling you i am teaching you the concept of and i'm not teaching you you've probably been taught this in like a library class in high school go to primary sources whenever you read a news article about something go to the primary source and vet the primary source if the primary source is completely unidentified and anonymous that should be a red flag because you have no way of vetting or backtracking anything about it doesn't mean that every story with an anonymous source is uh, bunk, but it, you should give you pause, especially if it's a story that's been building up and building up and building up and has 20,000 different moving parts and characters involved. What are we talking about today? We're talking about the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. 
I say this, but I was in just in New York about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and I went to a Uyghur restaurant. But their food is excellent. I, I gotta say, the food is excellent. This is not a slight against the Uyghur people. What I'm, everything I'm about to tell you right now, right? But this is more so against the the narrative that's been going around for two, three years. Although I feel like it has kind of died down a little bit, which should kind of paint a picture about how real a lot of this stuff is. The story goes that. The Chinese government is engaging in incredibly oppressive and repressive, uh, same thing, measures against the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region of China. That there is forced sterilization, that there is forced labor, that there is uh, concentration camps. That there is, I mean, it keeps going on and on and on and on and on and on with the accusations. It, and people have used the word Holocaust. This is a second Holocaust that uh, all, close to maybe over a million people are victimized by this. So let me make my stance very clear right at the outset. There are things to criticize with not just the Chinese government's domestic handlings or foreign handlings. We're not talking about the Chinese government as a whole. We're just talking about Xinjiang and China's treatment of them. And specifically the West's, meaning Western governments and Western media's approach and reporting on this narrative and story and how it's built up. There's things to criticize that China is doing to the Xinjiang region because it is a government it is a government is a centralization of power and so there is always room for excesses and potential abuses anything that you can say that china is doing to the xinjiang region that anything credible i should say is also stuff that we do here times you know, 80 80,000 it, it's typically much more complex over there i want to give a brief history lesson on some of the stories and the angles i want to introduce ideas and names and concepts to you guys regarding this whole narrative because you can't just look at it from the story got popular in what 2019 2018 you can't just look at it from that day onward from that year onward you got to build a whole narrative because otherwise you won't know who the fuck any of these people are and you're just going to agree with the most recent thing you read which is usually something american and arguing from a perspective of we need to go in there and destabilize Half the things I'm about to tell you, you've probably never heard of, even though if you just went to the primary sources listed in all these things, it would not take you that long to find. So let me give for some perspective real quick. I initially, I would say two, three years ago, did buy into the story, although I did not read too much into it, which you know, kind of tells you why I, I believed it. But I broadly like read about it and heard about it and assumed it was true. And then I saw a headline that said the Chinese government was engaging in forced sterilization of Uyghur women. And the number they gave was astronomical. It's like, oh, it's forced sterilization. This is genocide. The, the, the key word they were using was genocide and erasure of the people. And I said, damn, that's insane. That is an insane thing the Chinese government is doing. I should look into this more because I want to know how like horrific this is. That, that's not actually what I thought. I thought the story seemed suspect, the numbers being thrown around there. And then I looked into it more. I read not just Chinese uh, reports and newspapers, but also international reports. And by the way, the idea, because I, I, I know this is going to come. People are going to tell me that, Saad, 
some of the information you're getting is from Chinese sources or from Chinese people that's biased. Okay, why the fuck isn't American news biased then? I want you to give me that fucking answer. People always bitch and complain about diversity and representation of voices, but they're so fucking afraid of reading any dissonant voices or any voices from... No, I shouldn't say dissonant voices. They always read dissonant voices, and I'll explain why. But they're always afraid to read or, or listen or consume anything from a person from another foreign country. It's always got to be, no, I just need to get an American person who just happens to be of a different ethnicity telling me the same thing a white person could tell me. That's what I, that's what I actually want. I just want a different face to it. No, this is actually what it look, means to listen to other people's voices. And I'm kind of rambling at this point. So I digress. Let's get into it. All right. So in the 1970s, we've talked about this in our Afghanistan episode. We're talking about the Soviet-Afghan War, which obviously America was very much involved with. People broadly know that we funded Afghans to fight against Soviet Russia. The Soviet Union, I should not be saying Soviet Russia. Those are two different things. But that we were training Afghans and we were specifically funding the most militant Islamic soldiers who would eventually become... The Taliban, who would eventually become the people we would be fighting later on because we needed radicalized soldiers fighting for God. Those are those motherfuckers are the strongest warriors out there. You want people who are ideologically frenzied to fight for you because they will never back down. That is a ride or die right there. Here's something you guys probably didn't know, though. China was very much involved in this war at the time as well. China at this point had kind of stepped back away from its relationship with the Soviet Union because at the end of the day, the Soviet Union, while it did you know, make many, uh, let's say, pivots and good gestures towards burgeoning socialist countries, it, it was its own thing at the end of the day and had its own interests. China saw that it no longer benefited from a relationship with the Soviet Union and made somewhat of a rapport with the United States of America. And so the U.S. and China were both involved in fighting against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. How did China fight them? How did China get involved? And this wasn't always state-sanctioned. Some people from China just went over there. Because if you don't know, China borders Pakistan. And I think it's pretty... And it's not too far for China to get to Afghanistan. Well, it's the Xinjiang region. The Xinjiang region is close enough where members of the, the Uyghur community were able to go to Afghanistan and fight against the Soviet Union. Keep in mind, most of the people fighting against the Soviet Union on the Afghan side were getting radicalized or already radicalized, Islamic radicalism. And it'd be very clear in case people just get really butthurt about what I'm saying. I'm talking very specifically about a, a radicalized version of Islam, which is where you're just kind of a, a soldier for God at that point. I'm not talking about Muslims in general, right? But still... A lot of Uyghurs, the majority of Uyghurs are Muslim. So they would go there and they were subjected to the same radicalization that happened to Afghans. So if you already agree that Afghans uh, or Pakistani people in, in there, like there are many Muslims who went over there became radicalized, and they would go back home and bring that radicalization with them. That's exactly what happened with the Uyghur Muslims who went over there. They would bring back their ideology and training and even firearms and weapons and, and munitions back to the Xinjiang region. Again, not every Muslim, not every single person who went there, but many of them did, and that caused a huge problem. 
Many of these people who returned to the Xinjiang region formed what is known as the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. Now, why did it call it East Turkestan? Well, the region that Xinjiang is in, like, yes, politically and technically, legally, it is considered by state border a part of China, but that region has been broadly, it's called East Turkestan. And in particular, a lot of Uyghurs want a separate state called East Turkestan, all right? So there is a separatist movement there that is pretty relevant to what we're doing. And so naturally, a lot of the soldiers who were turned fighting from the Soviet-Afghan war came back radicalized and now really want to further that fight for independence. I'm not here to say that's a good or bad thing. That's a pretty common notion and idea amongst many ethnic and racial minorities within a state. But it's important to add that context, right? But the East Turkestan Islamic Movement in particular is, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's a terrorist organization. And they committed a lot of terrorist acts in the Xinjiang region and China at large. And I think also in Pakistan as well. So you might hear sometimes in regards to the Xinjiang story that China says, oh, well, there are violent extremists in Xinjiang. So that's why, you know, we had to engage in somewhat more authoritarian practices. And I'll talk about what those are and what those are later on. And so a lot of people, a lot of people in the West in particular, a lot of fucking Muslims in the West who don't know anything, assume that China is trying to say, well, all Muslims are terrorists. Not realizing that there is a whole background in history and context to what they're talking about. There was a very specific movement that they are addressing and getting at and that movement was partly born from like always u.s intervention i'm not trying to say the u.s is is specifically responsible for this right but it's blowback it is blowback that naturally happened as a result of american foreign policy and we have to contend with that all right so the xinjiang region for decades was dealing with this problem to the point that in the early 2000s after 9-11 the UN filed a resolution uh, for East Turkestan Islamic Movement to be labeled a terrorist organization. Which countries requested that the ETIM, you know, again, East Turkestan Islamic Movement, become registered as a terrorist organization? It was China, it was Afghanistan, it was Kyrgyzstan, and, and, and the United States of America. So that happened in 2002. Actually, 9 11, 2000. Too. So exactly when you're after 9-11. So let me be clear. The American government was fully well aware that the ETIM was a fucking terrorist organization back then. And this is another key point in our lesson on media literacy. If you want to know a story, you should go back and read about the reports and articles written about that story from years past. Including by the same companies and newspapers that are talking about it now. Because you'll often find that the opinions and perspectives have suddenly switched because it is now convenient to do so. So that's the background in terms of the radical movements and the political violence done in the name of Islamic terrorism in the Xinjiang region, okay? But I also want to talk about some figures that people are seeing now the heads of what is called the world uyghur congress there's also the campaign for uyghurs there's a lot of these non-governmental organizations invoking the name of uyghurs they're all based in dc or get funding from dc to talk about 
the violence and the, the anti-democratic practices in Xinjiang. The story I told you about Naira and the Citizens for Free Kuwait is incredibly important. Like I said, dissidents from a certain region, usually people who are generally more affluent and well-connected to the West, will leave, form a non-governmental organization or body, and then work with certain D.C. groups to create a foreign policy project plan for their home country so that way, usually, they get some benefit out of it. There is a CIA operation, well, was, not doesn't exist anymore, I think, called Yellowbird. The goal of Operation Yellowbird was to get Chinese academics, professors, well-to-do people, well-connected people, who generally had more of a Western connection, out of China and into the United States of America, so that way they could then do a lot of PR for the American government against China. Many of the people that they polled came after the 1989 Tiananmen riots, massacres, however people qualify. And calling it a massacre is a bit, that's very much a Western thing. And I'm not going to talk about the Tiananmen Square riots because they're, that's a very complicated subject. It's not as even as either side would like to make it out to be, but... The key point here relevant for our purposes is that pretty much every single person who is now heading the World Week Congress, who is now going to the UN or whoever making big speeches about how, oh, I used to be uh, in a detention camp in Xinjiang and this and that and this and that, they were all members of the class of people that got pulled from China after the Tiananmen riots via Operation Yellowbird. People who come, any Chinese person who came from like a affluent background into the U.S. after June 4th, 1989, you should be a little suspect of where they came from and who they know. These are some of the names of the people, and uh, I'm about to butcher the shit out of them. There's uh, oh, Erkin Altekin, Rushan Abbas, Dolkan Issa, Rabia Kadir, it's well, spelled differently from Rabia, Omar Kanat, and Nuri Turkul. Of these six, four arrived in the West on or after 1989. So in 1996, the World Uyghur Youth Congress, which eventually would become the actual World Uyghur Congress that we know today, was established in Germany with Omar Kanat and Dolkanisa, two of the people I had just mentioned, playing. I don't think they were the head heads, but they, were, they held incredibly influential and high positions, and they're still very much involved now. And in 1998, another non-governmental organization was formed, the Uyghur American Association, and that one was founded by Rushan Abbas, again, another one of the dissidents that came from China after 1989. Uh, by the way, Rushan Abbas was also working at Guantanamo as a translator, so I don't know how much I should care about her opinion on human rights if she was aiding and abetting U.S. Army intelligence operatives uh in sodomizing and torturing Guantanamo Bay prisoners. In 2004, the, Wo the World Uyghur Congress is officially formed. It is a combination of the World Uyghur Youth Congress that I previously mentioned, as well as the East Turkestan National Congress. Again, East Turkestan National Congress is, as you can imagine, a non-governmental body organization formed for the purpose of Uyghur separation from China, and if any, again, here's, here's an easy way of identifying if something's bullshit or funded by the West. If the naming convention of a group is a region or an ethnicity and national congress, it is almost always funded and formed by the U.S. because 
that organization is made to speak to people in the West, specifically Americans, and Americans understand the words National Congress because we have a Congress. And that's that's quite literally the marketing strategy behind it. The president was Erkin Alpidekin. I don't know how to say that shit. Again, one of the people I had mentioned before, one of the dissidents who left um, China. Now, he left a bit before the 1989 riots. Here's a key point about him, though. His father held a high position in the Guomundong dynasty. So what the fuck is a Guomundong dynasty? It was the American-backed Chinese ruling government based in Taiwan that was overthrown when China overthrew its colonizers. So let's let's be clear here. The this guy Erkin Alptekin, his dad was basically a stooge for American colonizers. And by the way, this kind of gets into stuff with Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan should very much be looked at in the context of American colonialism, and people just don't also know that. I'm not getting to all that, though. Coming back in post real quick to talk about our good friend Erkin, one key thing I did forget to mention, and this is not representative of the whole East Turkestan movement and movement for a separatist state for the Uyghur community. Again, I don't really... I'm not equipped to say that that would be a bad thing or a good thing, although I generally do lean on the side of more leverage and independence for ethnic minorities. But, you know, he is a very specific case, and the people I'm talking about right now in this segment are a very specific case. He and his organization, World Uyghur Congress, are hard, hard against any kind of interracial, interethnic mixing. So one of the things you hear from the World Uyghur Congress is that China is forcing marriage and like kind of implying rape in a sense of Han Chinese which is the ethnic majority upon Uyghurs imagine a racist white guy in America is saying that the government is forcing blacks and whites to mix in order to erase the white race that's pretty much what he's getting at here Really, the only thing that's happening is that the Chinese government is has become, over time, more loose about reproductive policies. And there is a slight encouragement to allow for interracial mixing, where before I think they were much stricter about that, which was actually a problem. They've opened that up, and that's been done for more pragmatic reasons, not even because the Chinese government is like, you know, they're particularly extra good people or anything like that. There is a population decline currently and so china has this issue where they're trying to get more people into the workforce who are of working age that's a theme we'll be hitting on later on this episode as well but i also bring that up to bring this point that why would china be trying to exterminate and kill a significant portion of its population that also provides its labor base. I mean, that just that just also doesn't make sense, but I just wanted to throw this in here and post real quick. I'm going to let you get back to it and listen to nasally-ass allergy attacks be red inside. I sound much better right now, but you're going to have to deal with what you get. So let's get a brief summary of Xinjiang as a region after the, let's say, 2000s. The problem is the Uyghurs were not only facing a lot of this uh, political internal violence from the 
you know, East Turkestan Islamic movement and other dissident movements such as those, but also severe poverty and a severe joblessness crisis. In fact, like I said earlier, American newspapers around, let's say, I would say 2010-ish, maybe 2009, early 2010s, late 2000s, kept writing about the labor problem in the Xinjiang region, and it kept pressing that China should do something. The complaints at the time were that Uyghurs were impoverished, uneducated, unskilled, not working, just contributed to a lot of family dynamics and social dynamics that made it even easier for more people to get indoctrinated into the political violence that was happening. That's not unique to Chinese people, to Uyghur people. That's pretty standard for any radicalization process. If you are jobless and have very little prospects in life, you are more likely to latch on to things that are more extreme as a way of coping and dealing with your external forces. So the Chinese government, and not just with the Xinjiang region, but other regions, but we're only focusing here, got really involved and engaged in a lot of state-led intervention and infusion of money and programs to get more people trained, more people educated, and also to de-radicalize, and I think the, the term gets thrown around is de-Islamify a lot of the Uyghurs. Now, that has gone a certain way with how people interpret it. A lot of people have taken this to mean that, oh, China is banning Islam as a religion. And arguably, from what I have read, there are a lot of oversteps, I think. But a lot of what people consider as Chinese policy or deterrence is either misinformed or completely wrong to begin with. Uh, so, for example, one of the things I've seen people point out or, or, or try to assert is that there's pictures and videos of Uyghur people drinking alcohol, right? And then every person, every Muslim is like, oh, did you know Muslims don't drink? They are forcing Muslims, Uyghur Muslims, to drink alcohol as an attempt to uh, remove them from their Islamic heritage. Well, here's the problem, and this is why it's not helpful to look at Islam as like a, a strict, rigid thing that everybody abides by a very specific one. The Xinjiang region, like the East Turkestan region, if you want to also call it that, uh, has like a very famous beer production that has existed for centuries. So even though they're Muslim, like, yeah, a lot of them drink and they, they have their own unique beer. Every culture, every region is very different. It just takes a little bit of research to understand that. So, no, the presence of alcohol there is not indicative of a, a, a de-Islamification process. And neither is the stuff, because I've seen this one a lot too, where old buildings that have the traditional curved dome that people associate with Arab or, or Islamic cultures, those buildings have increasingly become removed from the Xinjiang region. And people take that to mean, oh my god, those are mosques and they are bulldozing mosques and replacing them with corporate buildings. All right. If you're in America, how many of you have a mosque with a curved top? I mean, it's a very the idea that a a a mosque can't be just a regular building, or that all those buildings with uh, a certain architecture were all mosques is silly. That's like that's like a very that's like what a white person would think. It's like, oh damn, they're d destroying Agrabah now. It's at Applebee's. That's not what's happening. That's are, are probably not what's happening. And maybe to some extent, like the number of 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 mosques is 
maybe a little bit less. I don't know. But the information and evidence being presented does not add up. And that's what I'm trying to argue here is that the media literacy is lacking. The arguments being made don't make sense at all if you even think like a little critically about it. They are still allowed to fast despite reports and headlines I have seen about that where people are trying to argue that Uyghurs aren't even allowed to fast during Ramadan or pray during Ramadan. They, they are still allowed to. There are some restrictions that I think are that go a bit too far. They are very particular about not letting beards get to a certain length or there is more stringent policy about where women wearing hijab, which I think is an issue uh, about teaching young men how to uh i think there, there's very specific policies about young men becoming a hafiz which is like a an islamic scholar so i can't speak to the specifics of that but at least i will admit that yeah there's oversights and there's over boundaries but when you also consider, consider the context of what they were trying to fight which was an actual uh problem with political violence you can at least understand the context and it's also important to provide the context to say, hey, these accusations you're making, like while some of them have some basis, the most extreme ones are a, a bit outlandish. Speaking of that political violence, a lot of the members of the East Turkestan Islamic movements or people associated with similar organizations, you know, Uyghurs who were radicalized, a lot of them went to Syria to fight in amongst the militant Islamic groups against the Syrian government. And the Syrian government, in fact, sent a letter to the Chinese government saying, hey, yo, get your boys. This is a problem. Which, again, goes to show that, like, this radicalization problem has outreach. It, it spreads out. And this is true of, like, any kind of training program. Not even just religion. Not even just Islam. Like, any, any sort of time you train people and radicalize them to adopt a violent behavior and practice and ideology it will have spillover effects to other parts of the world this constantly happens this constantly happens that's just a side point i want to bring up as well now in 2015 china received a loan from the world bank for the xinjiang technical and vocational education and training projects so basically the world bank was supplementing chinese government state investment into providing training and technical skill training for the people of Xinjiang so that way they can become a part of the labor force and also more importantly lift them out of poverty. I bring that up because the World Bank is an organization that is predominantly associated with like America and the UK. They're not particularly friendly to China and as a requirement of these kinds of loans the World Bank gets to check in and do regular audits related to what the loan was for. So that was in 2015 in 2019 and 2020, I believe, the World Bank sent reporters and investigators to Xinjiang in order to investigate the accusations about concentration camps, about these vocational centers actually being concentration camps. Because if that's a misuse of their funds, China should get penalized for it and those funds should get taken away. Like I said, World Bank is not hospitable to China. Not in the sense that like it has a bias towards China. So you should not look at this as like, oh, well, of course they're going to say no. Or, or of course they would never pick a certain side. The World Bank found that those accusations were not founded. Or at the, very, the language they specifically use is that we found no evidence corroborating the arguments. Because, of course, the World Bank is not going to say that the story itself is bullshit. But they're going to say, what we found does not support any of that stuff. And that's a common thread here, right? The argument that was being put forth by major publications like Reuters in 2017 and 2018 with the story first started cropping up in America and the UK and Europe and Canada, etc., was that 
these concentration camps, these prisons were all very secret. That that the Chinese government was trying to hide them, that nobody could ever know about them. I mean, one of the main issues with that is if you go back in like 2015, 2016, you can easily find Chinese reports about the vocational centers to begin with, which are like out in the public. So right away, the argument that these are like secret clandestine buildings is bullshit. Like you can just do a quick Google search and find reports about them. But then you might say, okay, well, they won't let any investigators from the West or other countries come in and actually examine them. So they can say what they want. Like I said, the World Bank in 2019 and 2020 had sent delegates in order to check and investigate. But it wasn't just them. Throughout the past, I would say, five years, I'm just going to do a quick speed run of this. People from Thailand, Tajikistan, Pakistan, Cuba, even the EU sometimes, Saudi Arabia, uh, D- Democratic Republic of Congo, probably missing a lot of other people, delegates from the Islamic Council of Cooperation, and... A whole host of other Muslim countries, Global South countries, Latin American countries, African countries have been in Xinjiang in order to look at the vocational centers to determine like, oh, well, is this a fucking concentration camp or what? And they can never find evidence to actually prove that. But still, for some reason, it still gets reported that nobody has ever set foot in Xinjiang in order to vet these stories, even though if you just look at any other international group or of another country that isn't America or the EU, you will find that people have been there and said it's not happening. So the fact that like the New York Times can can publish a story saying no one's ever been there, it, it, that's like fucking disinformation. That's just patently false. In fact, before the EU actually agreed to going at one point, China sent an invite for the EU to come over and investigate because the EU was pushing the same story and the EU rejected it and then went on to say that actually China had never offered them. So there is a lot of lying involved here. Now let's talk about our main character, or it should be the main character, because this motherfucker is at the core of every major story, every report about genocide and imprisonment comes from this one guy, Adrian Zentz. He's a German born-again Christian extremist whose focus of study has been on China, then Tibet specifically, and now since 2017 specifically on Xinjiang. Any report you read, almost any report, the vast majority of reports from the New York Times, from the uh, CNN or, or whatever, right? The primary source ends up being Adrian Zent every single time. And it usually ends up being like the same one or two reports that they cite. Again, Check your primary sources and investigate because the numbers he uses and the mathematical analysis and and methods he used don't make sense. In the initial major report that he put out, cited that anywhere from, and I I shit you not, this is a statistic that gets thrown around and that is somehow considered serious and scholarly. By the way, most of these reports went a long time without being peer-reviewed. Said that there's anywhere from a couple thousand to several million Uyghurs in prison. Okay, all right, let, let, let's paint a picture here. You're out with your boy, 
you're with that one friend, that one guy who keeps talking about how much pussy he's gotten. You ask him what his body count is. One day he says, uh, you know, he keeps him modest. Six girls, three girls. I don't know, something like that, right? Another day he might say, ah, you know, 78. It ranges from 6 to 78. How the fuck are you going to take him seriously? How the fuck are you going to take this report seriously that immediately goes, well, it could be from anywhere from uh, 2,000 to a couple million. And again, he puts forth this argument that the reason he can't assess it is because there is no way to get into Xinjiang, which I've already laid out is just patently untrue. Now, some of the individual smaller points that he's made in there that have gone out in the mainstream, I think, are more true. And again, I wanted to like, occasionally make a pit stop to offer a fig leaf to people who are really upset at me and don't believe me right now, even though I feel like I've offered enough inf new information to you that you should realize I'm far more credible on this stuff than uh, the fucking random Muslim activists you found on Instagram who just repost headlines. There's absolutely an issue with increased surveillance and increased, mili uh, not military, but police presence in Xinjiang. That's a fucking problem. There is absolutely a problem there, but that's not, if we can have an issue about it, we can have a conversation about that. But that is not what the arguments are. The arguments are something outlandish like, oh my god, it's genocide. Oh my god, it's this. Oh my god, it's that. So, I'm, I have no problem making criticisms, but they need to be real and based and grounded in factual criticisms. In another bit of mathematical fuckery, a non-governmental organization based in the West called Chinese Human Rights Defenders publishes a report called China, Massive Numbers of Uyghurs and Other Ethnic Minorities Forced into Re-Education Programs. Okay, this is the report that formed a, a basis for this claim that uh, up to 3 million people were incarcerated. Now, this is why I say you got to vet your primary sources. Why? Because... Let me go look at the methodology used here. What they did to get that number of up to 3 million people that were missing in these internment camps is that they went to eight different small towns slash villages, okay? And interviewed one anonymous person from each of these villages. So key, word, key thing there. It's anonymous, so you can't you have no fucking way of verifying your vetting or following the logic here. But the thing they came out with is still bullshit. They asked each of these anonymous individuals, and again, anonymous is a red flag, to guesstimate how many people are from their town or village. I think village is doing a lot of the work. They these weren't like villages in, in a rural sense that you might be thinking of. They would take that number, alright, from eight different places took the average of those eight numbers, multiplied it by the number of towns that fit that definition, that quantitative definition, and then compared it to what the actual number has been reported by the Chinese census, and then they would say, oh, look, this is a smaller number by this range, and with uh, some level of like margin for error, we can then conclude that actually because these anonymous sources don't know x amount of people from their village we will then multiply it by this amount to then get this figure that does not track with the official chinese census meaning that there are people missing from those numbers because i don't know the logic doesn't make sense that's not how you do math that's not how you do statistics that's not how you do you you try going to your your uh, professor 
about this for your PhD thesis or master's thesis, they will take a taser and shove it up your nose. That's a stupid idea. But that's what's getting passed around as official social science, and that's what's getting put forward in every every single, almost every single major report or headline that you see about the Xinjiang issue often references this number or the Adrian Zen's number. And then also, when things get reported, sometimes the actual story gets completely misreported. In, I think, 2020, or maybe late 20, or early 2021, I'm thinking, it was reported that the UN had officially made a dec- and this was published in Reuters, which is a pretty well-known and official publication. It was reported that the UN had made a declaration that, yes, China is doing this to this number of Xinjiang, of Uyghurs, which I think the, the actual headline was something around like, imprisoning about a million Uyghurs. Well, you go to the store and you go to what actually happened. The UN did not make the declaration. One guy, Gay McDougal, uh, get your laughs at, it's a funny ass name. Gay McDougal, who was a member of the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which is a committee in the UN, he said that China had concentration camps and had a million Uyghurs in there. One guy said that. It didn't get to go through an official UN resolution or process or anything. In fact, the actual press release from the committee says this. Committee experts in the dialogue that followed congratulated China for creating extraordinary prosperity and lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, including in the eight multi-ethnic provinces and regions, but remain concerned about over the growing inequality, particularly for ethnic minorities who continue to disproportionately experience poverty. They were talking about Uyghurs there, because Uyghurs, you know, they're doing better in terms of impoverishment, in terms of job opportunities, but there's still a discrepancy in the same way that racial minorities in any country do. But still, the UN had, the committee had found that actually China was doing a really good job of combating poverty. It's a process, but it's still getting there. But the story that got reported, and the story that's now stuck in everybody's mind is that the UN had made a declaration and a resolution that yes there are concentration camps and the UN has never said that the UN has never found that to be true to the few times that it has had they have made a resolution or an attempt to vote on a resolution on this issue it always fails because the, the, the countries voting in favor of condemning China for that are pretty much always the US the UK Canada France members of the EU and certain countries that have a very close relationship to the US that is a very small percentage of countries in the entirety of the UN. The vast majority of the global south, including China, um, not China, Cuba, Pakistan, the Congo, have all con- gone out against the West and have pointed out that this is pretty clearly a politically motivated process. Here's a shorthand. If the global south, if like Latin American countries and African countries are going against the West and something, you should probably be siding with them over the West. Ready? So it's going pretty long now. I do want to rapid fire some points because like, honestly, this is not exhaustive. This is not at all exhaustive of everything I could be talking about. I'm probably going to miss something and then somebody's going to fucking dm us and say oh side you didn't account for this like bro i i don't have the time i'm talking by myself this is really hard you have no idea how hard this is but 
Okay, BuzzFeed published a report about satellite imagery that came also from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the ASPI, talking about how, oh, we have a geographic image, a satellite image of the re-education camps. I mean, the problem is that those aren't fucking re-education, those aren't what they, they say they are. They're buildings that they then put the label on as re-education camps. You actually do a little bit of digging. One of those was a vocational center, which, I mean, there is conflation between those two. People are calling the vocational centers concentration camps, which is not the same thing. And then there's also the fact that one of the buildings in, like, the BuzzFeed report that got them an award was a fucking five-star apartment building. Again, misinformation out the ass if it is against certain countries. Next, I want to hit on the accusation of forced sterilization that actually was the original thing that got me kind of keyed into this question and idea that maybe there's something iffy with it because in the again in the adrian zenz report and by the way adrian zenz is a hard 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 hardcore anti-abortion extremist he, he is like a hardcore christian so this is a guy writing the report and this is his definition of everything that is considered um for sterilization he cites that there. 80% of Uyghur women are forcibly sterilized. Why? Because there has been a decrease in the Uyghur community's birth rate in the past few years. Alright, this is why context is fucking important. That is true of all of China, including the Han Chinese, which are the ethnic majority in China, who ostensibly receive the most privilege and benefits, which is kind of true. I mean, that's true of like any fucking country. So, the argument being that hey, there must be forced sterilization because there's a decrease in population is not accounting for the global, the, the countrywide context. It's also true that because the Xinjiang region is seeing an uplifting out of poverty, increased education, and increased salaries, that that historically, globally, always leads to lower birth rates. When people are more educated and have more money, they produce less children. That's a tale as old as time. Any basic social science 101 class would tell you that. With more education and with more state investment also comes more contraception options. You know, there's, there's more Planned Parenthoods in the Xinjiang region. Not actually Planned Parenthood. But like I said, it's important the guy who's writing this is firmly against any form of birth control or contraception or anything. So for him, any kind of family planning is akin to forced sterilization. Which is why he gets that 80% number and it gets touted and thrown around without any sort of critical angle or look to it. You gotta do a little bit of digging and you'll find it's bullshit. Finally, the forced labor issue. This primarily came in accusations against the, uh, the co from the cotton industry. The Better Cotton Initiative, which is a western-based uh, alliance of cotton producers and mega conglomerates arguing that China is engaging in forced labor practices in their cotton production. Pay special attention that it is Western cotton producers that are making this claim that it then gets spread out. The Xinjiang region's primary production is cotton. That is the main method that China is using to train people in order to get them out of poverty. Like I said before, in about a decade ago, Every Western outlet, every Western government was asking and telling China to solve the Uyghur jobless issue. There are too many unemployed Uyghurs. Well, now, because unlike America, China directly gets involved and directly employs its people and gives them jobs, that is now being considered forced labor. 
And so now the accusation to forced labor are out there on top of everything else with the, you know, supposed concentration camps. Companies that would use the supply chain of Xinjiang cotton, such as Nike, and that's a pretty big story, and H&M, have pulled out of China, have pulled out of sourcing cotton from Xinjiang, even though the accusation has not credibly been vetted or corroborated, I think. Which is pretty clearly the main goal in all of this. Like I said, countries have foreign policy projects. And they take years to manifest and develop. There are multiple angles they go from. There's propaganda, there's military, there's economic angles, etc., etc., etc. The goal for the U.S. is to destabilize and weaken China's grip on the economy. Because China has clearly, clearly grown in leaps and bounds in ways that people did not expect. You ask people 30, 40 years ago if China would ever become a growing superpower, they would have said no. But they were able to do it. And they did so in many ways that I have issues with. Again, I need to keep making this clear. I'm not some stooge for the Chinese government. There's a lot of things to criticize. But you need to criticize the right things and be honest about what it is. Especially if you're coming from the context of the world's strongest nation that gets to dictate the trajectory and economy of every other country in the world. China doesn't have that ability. Not to nearly to the same extent as the U.S. does. So always focus on your own backyard. Always, 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 always. There's things to criticize. I've laid them out. There's too much to cover, though. I'm going to cut it off here, guys. This has uh, been very difficult. I apologize for... My nasally voice, I've been having major allergy problems this past week. And, you know, if I'm slurping or whatever, it's just, it, you know, talking by yourself is hard for almost an hour now. I kind of miss my boy. Or, at the very least, I really should get a co-host next time this kind of thing happens because it's, this is rough. And I would advise Cher not to try to do this by himself. I mean, if he, he wants to, but it's, it's, it's definitely rough out there. So, this has been... Episode 46 of Hot Pocket. I'm going to keep it there. I know this probably episode's probably going to give me a lot of flack. But I want to put it out there. It's important. And also, this was something I kind of wanted to try to do anyways. At some point, I didn't think it would happen this soon. But hey, you know, a solo history kind of episode. Very ill-formed. Very scrambly all over the place. 100%. I, I totally recognize that. But kind of a fun endeavor. So, um, you know, when you want to throw your, your shade at me or get angry at me or whatever, call me... Uh, whatever the hell, you know where to find us. We're on Instagram. And in the meantime, also, follow, like, comment, share, all that stuff on Apple and Spotify Podcast. Alrighty, guys. I'm out.